I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back. This is Rachel, and this is with all your mind. We are in the middle of talking about the Old Testament canon. I don't know how you feel about that. How's it going so far? I hope it's good. We're continuing today, the day I'm recording on. It's a Wednesday. It's beautifully sunny outside. And I went for a hike this morning. And, oh, I should tell you about this hike. So it was just this nice little hike along a ridge. Not a whole lot of, you know, really hard parts or anything. You have to get up the ridge, but it's not that high. I ran into a guy with this little three-year-old boy, and this three-year-old boy, working hiking boots, carrying his own backpack, was going to do the entire, I think it's about a four-mile hike, by himself, like not getting piggyback rides and stuff. And I was seriously impressed, but also it made me feel pretty pathetic that my friend and I turned around before, before the end of the hike. We needed to. I needed to get back before my boys got home. But yeah, a little three-year-old is doing a four-mile hike, and then his dad told me, oh yeah, and he did a couple of 5Ks this summer too. I'm like, what? (laughs) My boys wouldn't even get out of the parking lot before complaining about being tired. And this little kid is like munching on a Nutri-Green bar and doing a four-mile hike. So go little kid, whoever you are. All right, so let's talk more about the Old Testament canon, and I'm going to recap just a tiny bit about what we talked about last week. And so here's some things that we talked about. Uh, We talked about the infallibility, inerrancy, and inspiration of scripture. And inspiration is the doctrine that we believe that everything in the Bible is inspired by God, directed by him, that he used the Holy Spirit to direct the writers of the Bible. How specifically he did that, uh, we'll have to talk to those guys in heaven. I don't know specifically. We talked about uh, infallibility and inerrancy. There's like a spectrum of beliefs about what do we mean when we say that the Bible is accurate and it's full of truth. If it says things like the earth has a dome, And it's put upon the four pillars of the earth. And it makes it sound like the earth is flat. And yet science says that the earth is a globe. It's round. How do we reconcile those things? How do we we look at the biblical narrative and scientific facts and not ignore either one and not play games in our minds with either one? How do we reconcile those things? So inerrancy and infallibility are different doctrinal statements or beliefs that deal with reconciling the Bible with science. That's basically what inerrancy and infallibility are. And you kind of have to figure out on your own what you believe about those things and what to do with those things. Because if you just turn a blind eye to them, doubt on one end or the other starts to creep in. You can end up either being a flat earther or you can end up kind of drifting away from the truth of the Bible. I mentioned in the last episode that sometimes uh, the theory of evolution or different scientific theories can mess with people's minds so that they feel like they have to ignore 
or not really think about either science or the Bible when they discover either a clash or a conflict between them. So we don't really need to do that. And I actually have a book to recommend to you that might help you with that if that's something that you can get hung up on or caught up on. And that is The Biblical Cosmos by Robin Perry. This is a book that talks about the worldview of ancient Israelites and the different cultures that were around them and how they thought about nature and uh, the universe and how the earth was made up and where was hell and where was heaven and how does God come to earth? How does God interact with the earth? They had their own theories and beliefs about how the earth was made up, how it was ordered, and it's a really good book if you want to really understand what was the biblical worldview and what to do with it in modern times. Do we just need to throw it away? Can we use it still? If it's in the Bible, it's still useful to us somehow, right? So that's what that book deals with. So that's again, The Biblical Cosmos by Robin Perry. I read it about a year ago. Um, I would lend it to anybody, but I already lent it out and I still haven't gotten it back yet. So you can find it on Amazon though. And I think it was one of the books recommended by The Bible Project. So I think that's how I found it. Okay, so on with Old Testament canon. We also talked about how New Testament figures talked about the Old Testament and what is quoted from the Old Testament in the New Testament. But did you know that the Bible also quotes from other books? Right? It's not just that Jesus and Paul quote from the Old Testament. They do, and they do that a lot, especially from Deuteronomy. But the Bible, New Testament and Old Testament, quote from other books. And you have to ask yourself, well, if they're quoting from those books, are they considering those other books canon? Why aren't they canon if they're not? And what are we supposed to do with those other books, right? And it's important because if archaeology finds more unknown books, it comes up in the media, it comes up in the news, and people who want to mess with the Bible will say, well, look at this book. Shouldn't this be a part of the Bible? And you need a way of thinking about canon. Okay, so here's a couple of examples for different books quoted by New and Old Testament writers. The book of Jude, Jude, Revelation, second to last book of the Bible, mentions or in quotes from First Enoch, right? First Enoch. This book was written about 300 BC, and it's part of a group of books that are called the Pseudepigrapha. <laughs> I used to think that word was really funny because it has pig right in the middle of it, and I always thought it had something to do with pigs. No. Pseudepigrapha means books that we don't know the author and are often pseudonyms. They have pseudonyms. That means that they were writing under a name. Jane Austen originally wrote under a pseudonym because she knew it would be very hard to get her books published because she was a woman. So I think it was her first book or two, I don't remember exactly, were written under a pseudonym so that they would actually get published. After she got a little established and people liked her books, she started selling her own books under her own name. So a pseudonym 
pseudepigrapha just means books written under another name. So first Enoch is a book written about 300 BC, but the author said, oh, it's not me writing it. This was Enoch that wrote it. And we're talking about the Enoch back in Genesis who never died. He was just taken by God up into heaven. And he was, I think, Noah's great, 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 great 10 times grandfather. I think that's where he was in line. But this book, First Enoch, is not considered biblical canon by any Christian church except for the Ethiopian Orthodox and Eritrean Orthodox. Why not? <laughs> well, it was written in that intertestamental period that we talked about last time, after the last prophetic book was written, Malachi, and the Jews didn't consider anything else after that to be canon. First Enoch was written, and they looked at it, and they read it, and they did not think that it was inspired by God. Okay, that's about it. But Jude quotes from it. So just because a New Testament author quotes from somebody doesn't mean it's Bible. It doesn't mean it's canon. It doesn't mean it's inspired scripture. Here's another part. Uh, Jude also quotes from something called the Assumption of Moses. He talks about how Moses' body was fought over by two angels, blah, blah, blah. It's a weird story, right? And that is out of a book called The Assumption of Moses. Why did he quote that? Why did he bring that up? I don't know. But he quotes from this book. Paul refers to Janus and Jambres out of a book, Janus and Jambres. In Acts 17, he quotes from a Greek poet. In Titus 1.12, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So he is not personally calling Cretans liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. He's saying, hey, even one of your own prophets called you that. Now, he called a Cretan a prophet. Does that mean that he was a prophet of Yahweh? Not necessarily. Because he's quoting it, does that mean he believed it? Because he's quoting it, does that mean that what is being said in that quote is true? No. So we have to be very careful about what people use, and we have to look at the context. Like I, it's ugh. everywhere that you want to look at for how to study the Bible and good solid practices for studying anything, especially literature is context is king. Context, context, context. It's why I don't even like to look at the grammar of biblical passages too much anymore, because it makes you focus so minutely on grammar instead of the context that you often get lost in the forest because you're looking at one single little tree. So context is really important. Paul was saying, look, this is so well known that even a Cretan himself, a prophet of yours, that you appreciate apparently because you, you quote him, says that these guys are lazy and gluttonous. So he's just trying to make a point. So the Old Testament also quotes from other places, such as the book of Jasher. I always remember the book of Jasher because I remember reading that name as a kid and thinking that it was a really interesting name. Now I kind of cringe every time I hear it. Because in Hebrew, it's still a very widely used word. It's a very common word. And it's yeshir. <laughs> so jasher and yeshir. <laughs> it just bothers me. Personal pet peeve. You don't have to care. 
Okay, so the book of Jasher is mentioned in Joshua. The book of the War of the Lords is mentioned in Numbers 21. And what does this say? It says that there were other books that were not considered canon that we don't have anymore. That's what that shows. And that the Bible is not afraid of mentioning these books. It doesn't feel like to mention these books is doing something bad or ruining something or giving a false impression of something. They're saying, hey, you know about this fact because it's mentioned in this other book too, right? So, you know, sometimes people say, don't read other books, just read the Bible. I am 80% in support of that statement. Number one, yes, make the Bible very important. Don't read other books if you're not even reading the Bible. Read the Bible first, and then with your spare time, read other books. But don't be afraid to read other books. But this shows that we can have books and read them, even if they're not the Bible. The Bible itself does that. Another point that this shows is that truth can be found anywhere. And it also means that you can have inspired scriptural truth and you can have uninspired truth, right? What's the difference? Inspired scriptural truth, that just means that God gave it to us to have and to hold forever, amen, kind of thing, where this is stuff that you need that's useful for lots of purposes and I want you to have it. And then there's uninspired truth. It's just something is said somewhere that's truth, that we should use it, apply it, but we need to be careful not to make people heroes or follow them blindly just because they can speak some truth. Truth can be found anywhere. There's a difference between truth and inspired scripture, okay? So don't be shocked if you can find truth elsewhere. So there was another aspect of all of this that I was thinking about, especially when we were talking about Esther and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes and about the books that are not quoted in the New Testament. And I was thinking about this with, hmm, do we have a pressing need to quote from Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon or Esther in the New Testament? No, not so much. Why? What books do we quote from in the New Testament? Very often, it's the law or history or prophecy that's quoted in the New Testament because those things give us facts, right? It gives us information. So what do those other books do for us? And if you have a hard time imagining why those books are in the Bible, I realized it might be because we don't understand what those books are really about, what they're really telling us, why they were written. So here's a couple of things. Song of Solomon. It's a pretty odd book to be in the Bible, right? Love poetry that gets pretty explicit at times. Well, would it help to know that in some Jewish Orthodox circles, the book of Song of Solomon is not read until you're 30 years old and sometimes only by men after they're married when they're 30 years old? Would it help to understand that? That it had a certain audience in mind? That helps me a lot because I tend to think, well, if it can't be in a children's Bible, why do we even have it? If God can't say it to a 10-year-old, well, that's an awkward Bible to have. No, no, it's not. I was wrong. It's not an awkward Bible to have. It means that some things in the Bible are appropriate to certain audiences. Is that shocking? 
It kind of is, actually, because we tend to think of the Bible as being for everyone at all times. Don't we think of it that way? That the parables in the New Testament spoken by Jesus should be heard by everyone at all times? I tend to think that, but not everything in the Bible is meant for all people at all times. There is discernment and wisdom and appropriateness that just because it's the Bible, it doesn't wipe that stuff out. Another book that isn't quoted directly in the New Testament is Ruth. Part of the reason why Ruth is in the Bible is that it gives us background information on part of David, King David's lineage and his history. Ruth was only his, I think, two greats, grandmother, great-great-grandmother, not far back in his history. So to, for a king of Israel to have a Moabite in his lineage, but only about four generations back, was kind of a big deal. And part of it is to show what God did with David's lineage. Another part of uh, the reason for Ruth being in the Bible is to show God's kindness, God's providence, how he fulfilled some promises. And a reason that I really like is that Ruth, the book of Ruth, gives us a picture of what a kinsman redeemer is. And that is a goel, if you have ever heard that Hebrew word, goel. And the goel, or the kinsman redeemer, is actually a really big picture in Hebrew and Jewish kind of lore. It's a very big picture of who God is to us. Whenever we talk about God being our redeemer, we're referring to him as our goel. And that's what Boaz was to Ruth. So it's giving us one very clear picture of a goel. Another book that we might not know why it's in the Old Testament canon is Esther. And you might not know that Esther gives us the origin story of the festival of Purim the saving of the entire Jewish people, and God's providence even in foreign lands in exile. We don't have a lot of stories or history or narrative when the nation of Israel is in exile, when they're in Persia, when they're in Babylon, when they're in any of those places. Well, here's one of those stories. So it's a, it's a different aspect of God taking care of his people even when they're in exile. And that's a much different story. It's a much different feel to it than when they're in their own land. So just because the genre of a book is different from what is usually quoted, something that gives us information or narrative like Deuteronomy or Joshua or Genesis, just because it's a different genre, it doesn't make it less important. It might just mean we should be careful with forming doctrine out of that book. And we tend to make doctrine out of verses of the Bible, right? We try to make beliefs out of different narratives. Like, okay, so uh, Joseph did this while he was in Egypt. What can we learn about that, about God or about ourselves, right? That's what we typically do with Bible verses. But when you're reading books like Ecclesiastes and Lamentations, you have to be very careful about forming beliefs out of those books. All right, congratulations, we made it. We're done talking about the Old Testament canon. Now, if you remember back to the first episode of this season, we talked about the historical context of the Bible 
like at the time of Moses, what was going on in the world, and at the time of Jesus, what was going on in the world. So we're going to do that kind of same thing for context, but with the Bible. What did a Bible look like at the time of Moses? And what did the Bible look like in the 500s BC, which is the time of the Babylonian captivity? Okay, and we're going to do that all through this season, is at various points in the season when we hit different historical time periods, because we're going to talk about a couple of different things, which will take us through history a little bit. When we hit a certain time period, we're going to look at what did a Bible look like in that time period. The next episode is going to be about the New Testament canon, and we'll talk about what did a Bible look like at the time of Jesus? What was in it? What materials were used for it? How was it made? How expensive was it? Who could have one? All of those different kinds of things. Okay, so first up, we're going to look at what would a Bible have looked like at the time of Moses? Now, if you remember from that historical context episode, Moses lived sometime between 1200 and 1500 BC. And I used a really big span of time just to make it easy for us to think about those big numbers. 1500 and 1200 is much easier to talk about than 1427 BC. I, my brain just starts to forget how to do BC 80 when I do that. Okay, so what did a Bible look at like at the time of Moses? Well, <laughs> if you think about it, there was no Bible. There was only direct revelation from God. And if you listen to the linguistic series from the summer, we talked about when writing became more prevalent and when uh, an alphabetic system was invented. So if Moses was 1200 to 1500 BC, the alphabet was only invented in 1718, 1900 BC only potentially up to maybe 300 years before Moses lived. So the alphabet, the Proto-Hebraic, Proto-Hebrew, first Hebrew alphabet that Moses would have been using was less than a couple hundred years old, okay? And writing at this time was only widespread by a couple of different civilizations in the ancient Near East and almost nowhere else in the whole world. So we don't have good records of this time. We don't have a lot of information about different time periods except through archaeology because writing things down was not a common thing to do. It was only as commerce and trade got more complicated that it demanded a way to keep track of everything. Okay, so at the time of Moses, there was no paper. There was no parchment. There was no vellum. These are all more, quote-unquote, modern ways to write things down. So, there was direct revelation from God, and things could have been written down on stone from time to time. So, it was pretty common to have things inscribed on stone the way that Moses and the Ten Commandments is written down for us. So, when you think about, oh, you know, writing the commandments down on two tablets of stone, that sounds like a movie. Well, yeah, kind of, but that would have probably been the best way for Moses to write these things down. Sumerians, which was another civilization in the ancient Near East, used clay tablets for writing. They would kind of wet down one side of the tablet and then use a stylus to scratch marks into the wet clay and then wait for it to dry. 
but writing in general, just for personal records, for writing down stories, was pretty rare. It was mostly just used for commerce, to write down how many sheep were sold on a particular day, and those kinds of things. So Moses writing on stone tablets fits right in with historical writing of the time. Uh, There are some things called steel. It's spelled S-T-E-L-E. These are some of the earliest written documents, and they're pillars of stone, often talking about land ownership. They're kind of like land markers, where you would set it up in the corner of your field, and it was a public way to show ownership rights. And that was done as early as 3000 BC. So that's a pretty old way to write, is on stone. Some other early writing, um, the earliest Hebrew writing that we have, like obviously there would have been some older writing, is from some silver amulets. So amulets are these little trinkety type things. And it is the these silver amulets that we have were found in Israel and it is this Paleo-Hebrew, and they think they were written on in the mid-7th century BC, so 700s BC, so a good 700 years after Moses. But this is the oldest example that we have of Hebrew is 700 years after Moses. So writing at the time of Moses, just not commonly done. So what Bible was there at the time of Moses? whatever Moses wrote down, (laughs) and whatever his editors and helpers wrote down with him. That was the Bible. So what was the Bible at the time of the Babylonian captivity? And that was the 500s BC. So about a thousand years after Moses. So at that time, scrolls were used for writing and copying the books of the Old Testament. So a scroll is a It's flat, obviously. It looks kind of like paper, but it's animal skin, stretched out and sometimes bleached, scraped, and then stretched until it's thin as you can possibly get it. And then it's trimmed down a bit and it is uh, sewn together piece by piece for however long you want a scroll to be. And basically, you want a scroll to be decently long because you're putting a lot of effort into this scroll. So you want it to be on the longer side because it's only, depending on the scroll, only about the height of a normal size of paper. So that's 11 inches high. Some scrolls were about 11 inches high. If you have an idea in your mind about what a scroll is from seeing scrolls in synagogues in modern times, those scrolls are often much higher. Ancient scrolls were in the range of 10 to 15 inches high. So you took a long piece of leather, and sometimes it was papyrus, and those pages were either glued or sewn together with animal sinew or hair, and then it was rolled up. I'm sure you all have made scrolls as kids where you write on a piece of paper and then roll it up. But you have to think about what this means for what you're reading. You're reading across and then down, right? In English, we go left to right, left to right, left to right, left to right, down the page. Same thing in a scroll, except they were going right to left. And then they would scroll up a part that you already read and then unroll a part that you're going to read next. And the first page often had a big blank part. And that was because 
it's a scroll, it's leather, it might fray a bit, it might get dirty on the outside. So you kind of left a big chunk at the first part of the scroll in case it got dirty so that you could still read the words because they weren't on that outer part. It was kind of like having an extra title page to keep the front of the book clean. So another example of ancient writing at the time is Ostraca. Ostraca. And this is basically ancient notebook or ancient scrap paper. And that is if you had a piece of pottery, a jug that you would take to the well, fill up with water and bring home. And oops, you fell over the doorstep and you just shattered that piece of pottery. You can't use it anymore for water, but pottery is excellent to write on. So if you needed to write a little note, you would use some kind of ink and write on that piece of pottery. And it was great because once you didn't need it anymore, it was trash to begin with. It was ancient scrap paper. So this was used for ballots when voting. It was a poor man's Bible because you could write down a verse on it and take it home with you. So it might not have been too weird in ancient times, in the time of the synagogue, from 500 BC on up until Jesus' time, for people to bring pottery shards with them to the synagogue, have somebody or themselves write down a verse from a scroll and take it home with them if they could read. And ta-da, poor man's Bible. So a couple of different examples of writing and forms of writing in the Babylonian captivity. And specifically for writing biblical books, they would have been done on scrolls. So that changes how you can read something, how often you might want to read something, because remember, there is no verses or chapter markings in books at this time. So that means if you wanted to look for a specific story or a specific fact, you had to just look through the book and find it. So there you have it. There's writing at the time of the Babylonian captivity. And there would have been most books of the Bible already accounted for, except for some of the prophetic books and some of the narrative books, such as Esther. So they would have had all of the first about 10 books of the Bible as we have it now, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, potentially not First and Second Kings, but maybe First Kings, and then Psalms and Proverbs they would have already had, but then a lot of the other prophetic books were written around the time of the captivity and slightly after, during the return to the land, such as Ezra and Nehemiah. So there were many of the books of the Bible that were already written by 500 BC, but there were still some to be written, okay? So there is the Old Testament. So like I said, we're going to move on to the New Testament next. We will talk about what kind of Bible Jesus may have read out of. And how do we know that the books of the New Testament should be a part of canon? And how did it get that way? All right? All right. Aren't you glad that I split this up into two episodes? I did not anticipate talking this much, but here we are. So you guys have a great day and I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.